Okay, we are live on this Wednesday morning for myself. I believe it's Wednesday morning for you, Alexander. I also believe it's Wednesday morning for our brilliant guest, the one and only Jeffrey Sachs. How are you doing? Hey, great to be with you. Morning in great. Vienna today. So. Okay, so welcome to everyone that is watching us wherever you are in the world. I have the link to the Center for Sustainable Development, where Jeffrey Sachs is a director. I have that link in the description box down below, and I will also have it as a pinned comment as well from Columbia University, the Center for Sustainable Development. Alexander, Mr. Sachs, we have about 30 minutes. Let's talk about what is going on in the world today. Really, really quickly, let me say a quick hello to everyone that's watching us on Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, YouTube, thedurant.locals.com, and on Telegram. And a very, very big thank you to all our moderators. Thank you very, very much to our awesome moderators. Alexander Mercuris, Jeffrey Sachs, I pass it off to you two gentlemen. And I think let's, let's actually plunge in since we've got, uh, we got, we're privileged to have Jeffrey Sachs with us for 30 minutes. So let's make the best use of them because Jeffrey Sachs has been writing amazing articles. He's, he's written one about the origins of the war, which I thought was extremely interesting. And I think he wrote an, one which I personally found both brilliant and insightful and very timely, reminding us all of President JF, John Kennedy's speech in 1963, his so-called peace speech at American America University. I think this is, by getting the name of the institution correct, in which President Kennedy outlined an approach to, to maintain peace in the world and peace between powerful countries, great powers, which if it were followed today, if it was part of the text, the, 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 you know, the, the way in which diplomacy is conducted, I think it would avoid, it would have prevented all the kind of crises that we're seeing. Of course, President Kennedy made that speech uh, shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which of course has brought the two superpowers at that time, the United States and the Soviet Union to the brink. The Soviets were incredibly impressed with it. And of course, in a sense, in a very important sense, it was the speech that laid the foundation for that process known as detente, which developed over the course of the 1960s and for a time seemed to consolidate peace in the 1970s. So, uh, Jeffrey, do you want to tell us a bit more about this article? And about Yeah, Alex, thank, thanks for bringing it up. Great to be with both of you. Uh, you know, what we learned from 60 years ago is unbelievably relevant and important today. And that period was the height of the Cold War. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the, the, the closest we have ever come to nuclear annihilation, though we're heading that direction right now. Uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, I, I, I don't know if everybody realizes we came within one or two seconds of nuclear war, actually, not because of what Kennedy and Khrushchev were doing, but because of what one uh, captain on a disabled Soviet submarine uh, decided to do when he thought he was under attack by U.S. Navy, and that was his decision to launch a, a nuclear-tipped torpedo, which, if it had launched under U.S. doctrine, would have led to an automatic, full-scale nuclear 
uh, attack by the United States against the Soviet Union, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and China. The goal of the U.S. attack in such a circumstance was to take out 700 million people. We now know from the physics it would have ended humanity entirely, but we came that close. The order of the captain was countermanded by a senior official who happened to be on the submarine who said, I don't think it's a good idea. I think we should probably surface. Maybe we're not under attack. Uh, and in fact, uh, that's what they discovered, that Kennedy and Khrushchev had actually reached an agreement for ending the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, the thing to understand about the Cuban Missile Crisis is they compromised. They compromised. All of Kennedy's advisors, almost every single one said, go to war. It's our reputation. We cannot. We can win. Whatever stupidity they said. And Kennedy intuited, this can't be right. This is too dangerous. Khrushchev felt the same way even when he had placed the missiles in Cuba. He didn't want war. He wanted to give the U.S. a taste of its own medicine because the U.S. had put missiles in Turkey. So the two of them figured out how to compromise that Russia or Soviet Union would remove the missiles from Cuba. The United States would remove the missiles from Turkey. The U.S. would pledge never again to invade Cuba. And on that basis, the two sides would disengage. One really very unpleasant part, you know, it's a little bit carping after you've saved the world, but I'm going to carp just a little bit, was that Kennedy insisted that the U.S. side of the compromise, uh, which was removing the missiles from Turkey, should be kept secret by Khrushchev. And one of the most amazing things in history is that Khrushchev kept that secret. He even lost his job in 1964 because he said to his colleagues, and he wrote in his memoirs, what, should I have World War III so that I tell I violate the agreement I made? So he had he he had the he kept the agreement that he had made with Kennedy. Kennedy insisted on the secrecy for US domestic political reasons. Most of Kennedy's own aides didn't realize the compromise that had ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I think it's so relevant. If you don't mind, I want to take us back just a couple of years, even before that, because we're in the same situation right now. You know, how did we get to the Cuban Missile Crisis? We got to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 because Khrushchev put in uh, offensive nuclear weapons. But why? Because the United States had invaded Cuba in the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was one of the stupidest American foreign policy moves in modern history. And Kennedy had presided over that. Now, Kennedy was a, just a beginning president, and the CIA, our most dangerous and failed institution in American history, in my view, had put this harebrained idea on Kennedy's plate and told him, you have to do this, Mr. President, and it's bound to succeed. And of course, it was bound to fail. And it was a disaster that led to another disaster to another disaster. But the Cuban Missile Crisis came from a U.S. invasion of Cuba. And one of the striking things about that invasion is that when it started, 
Khrushchev and Kennedy had already established a secret line of communication to each other, a back channel. And Khrushchev wrote a letter to Kennedy, which is incredible to read. It says, Mr. President, piratical elements of your government are undertaking this uh, illegal international operation. Surely you don't know about it. You need to stop it. And Kennedy wrote what I regard as really one of the, the worst things he did. He wrote back a letter to Khrushchev saying, what? Us? We have nothing to do with this. This, is, this isn't the United States. And that was, you know, the direct lying is not good. It can get you into trouble. It can even get you to, into an end of the world when you're lying to a nuclear superpower. So that actually was the second big lie by an American president to a Soviet leader in a short period of time, because just before that lie and the, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a debacle, was the U-2 spy plane flight over the Soviet Union, where the CIA had told President Eisenhower in his last years, don't worry, they could never hit a, a U-2. They could never capture it. And if they do, the pilot has a cyanide pill. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll never be taken alive. And the plane is designed to disintegrate if it's hit. Blah, blah, blah. CIA stuff. Very typical. Of course, the Soviets shot down Gary Powers in the U-2 spy plane. It derailed all the diplomacy of the day. But even you know, more striking was... Eisenhower was told, okay, they couldn't have the pilot, the plane disintegrated, so Eisenhower lied. He stood up and he said, well, that's a, that is a, uh, an American weather plane that went off course from Turkey. And then the Soviets produced the spy plane and produced Gary Powers alive. And so Khrushchev felt, God, these people just lie to your face baldly on matters of fundamental fundamental national security. And this is the second time that happened. So if you unwind, it's remarkable. By the way, you can unwind even further, and I think nobody does anymore, but even the Cold War itself could have been diffused in the mid-1950s. And the issue is quite relevant, actually, for Ukraine, ironically. I'm in Vienna. In 1955, Vienna became, again, the capital of an independent country, and the Soviets left voluntarily from their post-World War II occupation because Austria declared neutrality. And the Soviet Union said, okay, neutral, we go. You're not a threat to us. And what the Soviet Union was saying to the United States is, make Germany neutral. Don't remilitarize Germany. Don't make it part of your most advanced military bulwark because they just killed 20 million of our citizens. And the United States, of course, was completely tone deaf to that. In fact, that's the whole approach of U.S. foreign policy. Don't listen to what the other side says. So George Kennan, who was our really greatest uh, diplomat historian and author of containment, but he meant containment in a kind of political manner, not in this highly militarized nuclear arms race matter, said in 1957, make Germany neutral. And then the Cold War ends. Then the Soviets can leave Central and Eastern Europe. 
then we can have peace. And of course, no one was listening to Kennan at the time because the U.S. always wants arms races. Okay, so all of that is the background to the 1963 speech because Kennedy really was a man of peace who found himself at the brink of nuclear war through stumbles, mistakes on both sides. And that's the real truth of Kennedy. He really wanted peace, and yet he almost presided over the end of the world. And he was deeply shaken at the end of 1962. And Khrushchev, who was a real human being, by the way, was deeply shaken at the end of 1962. And both of them corresponded, we got to get off the brink. We have to back off. This is very dangerous. And Kennedy gave this absolutely remarkable speech on June 10, 1963, which is my favorite speech of an American president in modern history, saying we can make peace with the other side. This is the height of the Cold War. Everyone hates the Soviet Union in the United States. All the propaganda, all the uh, anti-Soviet, anti-Russian sentiments that we have today every day in our newspapers was even more than you know, they're out to kill all of us. That was every day. And Kennedy said, no, we can make peace. They are human beings. They want peace the same way we do. They have every reason to abide by a, a, an agreement, a peace arrangement that's in their interest as it is in our interest. And then Kennedy said, and we should hail the Russian people for their great achievements in the arts, in culture, in science, in space in valor, in bravery. You know, can you imagine? But of course, that's what Biden should be doing if he even gave one speech to the American people about this. Of course, who could ever expect the eloquence or the wisdom of Kennedy right now? We, we could never expect it. But the amazing thing about that speech, which is why I wrote a book about it 10 years ago, because I love it. The speech was so wise, so smart, so much relevant for a man who had almost stumbled to nuclear war, the absolute opposite of what he wanted. And he knew how, this, how dangerous the world is. When the speech was delivered, Khrushchev read the translation, said he called the U.S. envoy, Avril Harriman, who was in Moscow, and said, this is the finest speech by an American president since Franklin Roosevelt. I want to make peace with your president. Five weeks later, they signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. It's an incredible story because it, it I said in, in my op-ed, you know, it's, it's like a mathematician would say a constructive proof. You don't actually just prove that peace could happen. You show it. You prove it by making it. So the speech led to a peace agreement, and it's completely relevant for what we have today. First of all, Kennedy knew both sides had led to the war. Both sides had led to the near global destruction. Both sides needed to back off. Both sides wanted peace. And this is where we are today, exactly the same thing, except we have this drumbeat, crazy drumbeat in the media, which you two so wisely talk about every day and report on, which is insane, by the way, led by the British. I, 
I respect the British. You speak English so much better than we do. It's yours. But this Russophobia in Britain is so deep. It's about 200 years old. It's so simple-minded. I used to even read The Guardian, by the way. Now I can't even go to the website. It's unbelievable. By the way, that's how our New York Times is. It's, it's unreadable. It's phony. It's propaganda from morning till night. It's so completely one-sided. And no one tells the history of anything. And I tried to publish that piece in the New York Times. Well, they rejected it in 10 seconds. Uh, and more, more than that, I tried to publish anything in the New York Times. And they said, no. Uh, what they want to say is it's an unprovoked invasion and we're facing a madman, and there's no one to talk to, and war is the only way, and NATO enlargement is the only way, and diplomacy can't work, and every lesson of history is ignored. That's where we are. That's where we are indeed. And in fact, you've been also writing about the fact that the invasion um, was most definitely provoked. This is not something that came out of a blue sky. It's not that Vladimir Putin got up one morning and said, Let me, let's invade Ukraine now. Um, in fact, we have a whole pattern of US and Western and British, and you're absolutely right in everything you say about Britain. I live here, so I should know. Uh, and I am British, so I should know. Uh, we and you have... speak such beautiful English, oh, I want to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But here we are in this situation, and we have played a huge contribution going all the way back to the time when you were in Moscow, you've already discussed the fact that you weren't getting the support then from the US government that you needed in order to do the kind of things that could have been done, which might have consolidated peace then and changed the political situation. And of course, there's no recognition of that today. None at all. I mean, you know, everything that happened at that time isn't discussed. And the enlargement of NATO isn't discussed. And it's almost heresy to suggest that it had any contribution, but it had any role in the start of the war at all. You want to say anything quickly about that before? We yeah, I, I just want to say that, now. you know, no. one of the biggest problems, and it's pervasive, is the U.S. government lies about everything and lies relentlessly. It's not the only one. British government does the same and other governments do the same. But the lying is nonstop. So we don't really even know, except by trying to parse the, uh, you know, whatever evidence or crumbs or, uh, or uh, leaks uh, or whistleblowers uh, tell us what's really going on, what is going on. But what we do know now is how America's top diplomats for 30 years warned against the American policy approach. And one of the most important warnings that everyone can find online is a memo by our current CIA director, William Burns, who in 2008 was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And he wrote a memo called Nyet means Nyet. Uh, and it was <laughs> that is a red line to uh, extend uh, NATO to Ukraine. And he said, it's not just Putin, it's the entire political class. It doesn't matter. Pro-Putin, anti-Putin, all Russian leaders say Niet means Niet. Now, the reason I mentioned secrecy in this context, we never even know about this except for WikiLeaks. 
because the American people, who should tell the American people what our top diplomat in uh, Russia thinks about the most crucial issue that could get us all killed? The, the American people, eh, they're completely incidental to this story. No one tells them anything and no one admits anything. And so there's been so much lying about the failure of negotiations. Why did the negotiations break down in March 2022? Because the U.S. stopped Ukraine from agreeing with Russia on neutrality. How do we know that? Because uh, I, I know it because people have told me that, that we're involved in the negotiations. But I also know it because Naftali Bennett, who was an informal mediator, happened to blurt it out in an interview, uh, which is quite fascinating to, to look at because it's a little weird how just open he talks. He says, yeah, we were reaching an agreement. We were in the seventh draft. They were about to sign. Then the United States came in and stopped it. And by the way, you know why he says they stopped it? Because... Well, I, I disagreed, Bennett says, but, you know, they wanted to look tough to China. Are you kidding? This is a war not even about Ukraine. It's about China and not even about China, but about looking tough to China. And by the way, Stoltenberg, who really is someone I've known for a long time, and he is a. Oh, I can't even say it publicly anymore. What I think about him, even though I used to be friends with him when he was prime minister of Norway. Disgusting. But today he says, you know, we can't look soft because China, China will see us looking soft. This is the way to get us all killed, by the way. But I want to come back to the secrecy point. We wouldn't know what these diplomats said, except that they get leaked or they get released or once in a while, one of them reflects after the fact in their memoirs, how dangerous the time was. William Perry tells us afterwards you know, I thought about resigning because of NATO enlargement. I was so much against it. It was so dangerous. But then I thought maybe I shouldn't resign and so forth. He's a wonderful man. He should have resigned. The public should have understood this much earlier. But these things are not told. And we never got an accounting of why the negotiations broke down in March 2022. So the, the mainstream media just go completely silent. They don't even ask a question. And it's this secrecy which allows a small group, Biden, Newland, Blinken, Sullivan, I'm sure, uh, you know, obviously Raytheon and others are happy in the, in the military industrial complex and the Armed Services Committee, they're happy. But it's a tiny group that is calling these policies and these are crazy policies, and they're absolutely dangerous. And I think the Cuban Missile Crisis, to come back to that, taught us, you know, most of the opinion of these elites, which was always pointing to war solutions, would have gotten us all killed. And that's why it's so crazy that we're in the situation we're in right now. One mild saving grace is that all the European pro-war leaders are unpopular and becoming more and more unpopular. And Biden is very unpopular. So none of this is winning any political support. And if they actually took the issue to the people uh, in uh, our countries, the public would be dead set against what we're doing right now because we're gambling with Armageddon, to, to quote a title of a wonderful book about the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
for no reason because we could have reached peace in December 2021 when Putin put absolutely valid, real propositions on the table that should have been negotiated. The U.S. rejected that. We could have reached peace in March 2022 when they came close to signing an agreement that the United States stopped. And we could reach peace now, mm. even now. But they don't want to negotiate. Mm. Because this is this is the problem. They don't want to negotiate. And then by not making negotiations possible now, it seems to me that they're making negotiations more difficult in the future. Of course, uh, everything uh, gets uh, harder. Everything, everything gets harder. And, you know, in, in 2021, in December 17, when... Uh, President Putin put the uh, U.S.-Russia security agreement on the table. There was no talk, by the way, about territory at that time or about annexation of Lugansk and Donetsk and so forth. This was about the Minsk II agreement, an agreement that was reached, not only signed by Ukraine, but actually endorsed 15 to nothing by the U.N. Security Council. And more than that, guaranteed, quote unquote, by France and Germany. Russia wasn't making demands to annex territory. Everything becomes harder when you have war. This is clear. That's why these guys, it's so mindless. And by the way, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I called the White House after Putin put those propositions on the table. I had, I was able to uh, have my say for an hour, but I was told point blank, we will not negotiate over NATO. And I told them, you're going to have war. This is absolutely reckless. So there we are. Do you get the sense that there is a policy debate now underway in Washington and that the wind is starting to change? Um, I, I, I've started to see articles appearing. I mean, there was Mr. Charib. I don't know whether you know him. But yeah, yeah. He does even I don't be know him personally. Uh, he does seem to be an interesting man, and he's making some comments now. He talked about an unwinnable war in Ukraine. You get the sense that I, I get the sense. That, of course, this is from London. It's a long way away here in London from what's going on in Washington. But it, I do get the sense that there are some people who say this is going too far. We've invested too much in this. It is getting too unpredictable. It is going on for too long. And we've had other articles appearing. There was a very... I, I, I didn't like the article, but it was in Politico about, you know, our military position is depleting, all of those sort of things. I mean, do you get the sense that there is there is now some doubt starting to grow in some parts of the American government and that this might eventually lead us back to some kind of a compromise, even if not perhaps quite as coherent a compromise as the one that President Kennedy came to in the 1960s. So first, it's interesting to say about Rand. Rand, Rand is solid uh, U.S. defense. Uh, I mean, that's how it was set up uh, for the U.S. Air Force and so on. But interestingly, and I've followed Rand, obviously, for 40 years, they do honest analysis, which is interesting because there are very few places where you get honest analysis. So uh, that article is insightful. That guy is quite insightful. Rand has been telling us for years, as, as you've been reporting, and as, as we know, don't get into a long war. It's not an American interest. Uh, and so Rand, uh, I 
give a lot of credit to Rand for in the midst of all of this complete mindless politicization to actually do analysis. This is quite different from, say, British intelligence, you know, what garbage passes for what's claimed to be. This is real analysis. So I think that that is uh, first important to note. Washington is so pathetic right now. Uh, first of all, it's, it's all geared towards nothing but 2024. So we're constantly in election mode. Election mode means money mode, and it means lobbying mode. So it, it's never really an honest debate. If there's a debate, it's about what does this mean for Biden's reelection? What he should do? What should he do for Biden's reelection? It's not an analytical debate. It's not how do we save the world debate. It's spin. What do we say? How do we maneuver? Of course, there are different points of view. A lot of people could see this is not working out very well. But things are driven so relentlessly by very short-term uh, theatrical uh, considerations that I, I wouldn't give a lot of hope to uh, kind of high-minded uh, rethinking. Who knows? But, you know, what I see is a tremendous concentration on spin and on posturing, and that is not conducive to strategy. Incidentally, by the way, even when Kennedy gave that peace speech, uh, he hid the text of the speech from the State Department, from the Defense Department, from the security establishment until the day before, because he knew he did not want the speech stopped. So you have to have really a clever, energetic, properly directed president to begin with. And I don't think Biden fits any of the, that description right now to, to even be able to break free of what is a, you know, this yeah. overwhelming war machine. And you need to have a mind that's somehow above net, the, 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 the spin cycle, and I don't see that right now. What I do think is absolutely happening is a consolidation of about 80% of the world in favor of negotiations. And that, to my mind, makes a very big difference. And we've discussed this, and you've been discussing this. The fact that it's not, I mean, it's China, that's hugely important. Indonesia, that's not a small thing, by the way, that the Indonesian government put on the table a peace uh, plan. Lula, not uh, unimportant at all, quite important because Lula brings together the whole leadership of South America. The dynamics uh, in, uh, in the Middle East, the African leaders saying, come on, you're choking us with this. We need peace. I think what is slowly dawning on the policy types in the United States and Europe is, oh, you know, the world's not with us. In fact, more than that, the world's actually against us. Because for a while they were saying, well, they voted 140 countries. And now they're kind of understanding it's, it's much worse than that. Europe's diplomacy is collapsing internationally. I mean, Europe is viewed as a, you know, a small appendage to NATO. Uh, it's uninteresting for almost all the world because nobody sees anything coming out of Europe except uh, basically 
uh, uh, parroting uh, the U.S. line. And the U.S. is seen for what it is, which is, you know, most of the world saying, we don't want to be led by you. Thank you. We'd like to trade with you. We'd like to cooperate. We don't want to be bombed by you. Thank you. Uh, And, uh, you know, but we don't want to follow you or have your sanctions regime and so on. And so all of this means that over time, the viability of this whole approach the U.S. hegemonic approach, the NATO enlargement approach, the war approach, even for the you know, military logistics and armament side, it's less and less viable. I don't think the U.S. will be the first one to, to, to break ranks on this, actually, uh, because of our strange, corrupted politics. But I do think that the weight of the world opinion really coming together to say, come on, stop already, is actually going to, one way or another, make the difference. I hope it makes the difference before, uh, b- before we get things completely out of hand. And, you know, to, to come back to where I started, there's in a, in a nuclear confrontation, in a nuclear age, 1,600 deployed nuclear weapons on both sides, a lot of not so very clever people in the U.S. leadership. Um, You just can't be complacent day by day thinking it's somehow all going to come out right because there are too many stupid people around, too many irresponsible people. That's why I'd like to get us to the negotiations as fast as possible, not give time for what I know is complete irresponsibility. By the way, when, you know, I've been at Harvard and uh, trained, I've I've seen how these people get trained. I want to negotiate. That's, let me put it that way. (laughs) We're now at 35 minutes, 33 minutes. So I think, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, this is where I stop. I don't know whether Alex wants just to quickly Well, uh, do you have five five minutes? yeah, I, I can stay for, for, for a few, I mean, for a few questions. Uh, great to talk to you guys. Great, so, yeah, great. Real it. quick, uh, a lot of people are asking, where can they follow your your work and your articles that you publish? Where's the best? What's yeah, the best so way? Yeah, so there's there's a website, uh, jeffsachs.org, I think. Yes, I have that. I put the link. I think it's jeffsachs.org. That's the best place because everything gets posted there. So it's really easy. Okay, great. So Good. a lot Thanks of people were asking, asking that. Yes, a lot of people were, were asking that. And we have from a question from Pamela. Jeffrey, I despair that Trump, Kennedy, and the West have all said very disparaging things about Putin. And without exception, I would say they all believe in American exceptionalism. Are you more optimistic than I am? You know, I've talked to uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, recently on several occasions, and um, he knows we need a peaceful approach. He knows uh, that uh, this war in Ukraine uh, is extremely dangerous uh, and uh, that we need negotiations. He understands the legacy of his uncle uh, and his father. And I think that that's extremely important. Uh, and um, uh, I, uh, we, we discussed uh, the peace speech, of, of course. Uh, I did also with the uh, with his sister, Carrie Kennedy, whom I adore and uh, very much respect. Uh, in fact, it, when we had a gathering in Rome uh, last week on the occasion of this speech, 
it was a little bit amazing because we had Carrie Kennedy, uh, the niece of uh, JFK, uh, daughter of Robert Kennedy. Uh, we had uh, Nina Khrushcheva, the uh, granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev. And we had uh, Gillian Sorensen, who's a UN leader and the widow of Theodore Sorensen, who was the speechwriter of the speech. So I thought it was a, an absolutely grand reunion. But I, I uh, just uh, would say that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is uh, extremely intelligent and uh, very much peace-seeking uh, and very much in the, the Kennedy tradition of peace-seeking. All right. Uh, Rafiq Adams actually asked the question, so what, what is your views of uh, RFK Jr., his candidacy? But he also asks, the, he also says, the longer we delay negotiations, the greater the possibility Russia will impose its own solution, perhaps all the way to the Polish border. Realistic? Is it realistic to wait for new U.S. elections? Well, I don't think it's realistic to wait, period. That's why every day I say we should negotiate. I find it, I really find it shocking that since February 24th, 2022, uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been one phone call between uh, Biden and Putin. What kind of world is this? If, if they want a link, I can send them a Zoom link. They can talk to each other. I mean, what, what is the point of not talking? You might not agree. Uh, you might really violently disagree, but that's a verbal disagreement. I mean, the violence is on the, on the battlefield. Talk to each other, for God's sake. You know, that's what is shockingly missing. And uh, there's so much to say about this. But, you know, one of my favorite lines of JFK was from his inaugural address, uh, where he said, uh, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. And come on, pick up the phone, Joe. Mm -hmm. Call Vladimir, talk. Because, you know, President Putin has some real points that you need to discuss. And you can make your points and find a way out of this. So don't wait. And also... You know, I, I'm, I'm an economist. I'm not a, a, a military guy. I'm, I'm quoting you, uh, Alexander. So, uh, uh, but I know in economics, what is often said is, well, we have to wait or things need to get worse before they get better. This is the stupidest advice. I've been involved in problem solving for 40 years. You don't wait for things to get worse so they can get better. Generally, when things get worse, they get worse after that. Things spiral out of control. Panics happen. Unexpected consequences. By the way, most unexpected consequences are, uh, could, could be expected uh, if you think about them hard enough. But most people don't, so they become unexpected consequences. We should not wait. Today, President Biden should pick up the phone and call his counterpart, and they should say, look, this is a terrible situation. We have terrible disagreements, but we're going to talk to see if we can find a way out of this. Because once they start hearing from each other, there actually are valid points to be exchanged between the two sides. And so that's why I said when President Putin put his draft agreement on the table on December 17, I immediately called the White House, said there's a lot of good in there and a lot that's negotiable. And by the way, the main point I made was 
not expanding NATO is not a concession. It's just prudence. It's not giving up something. It's just common sense, for God's sake. So it's not a concession. And don't wait till the next election. Definitely don't wait. Let's get the negotiations going now. Absolutely. We'll do uh, two more questions. Uh, Elza asks how to negotiate. March 2023, you won't give depleted uranium to Ukraine. June 2023, U.S. wants to give depleted uranium to Ukraine. So how do you negotiate? It, yeah, it's even more shocking than that because there, there was a Washington Post story a week or two ago, and the headline was something to the effect that Biden increasingly uh, um, ignores every Russian red line. And then the, the whole story was these idiots, sorry to say, in Washington saying, well, uh, Putin's bluffing. So now we know we can go farther. We can go farther. We can go farther to oops. OK, there goes the world. You know, what are we doing? What are we doing? Of course, we're violating every statement that we've made. Things escalate in wars. And we have a war machine in the United States. And then we have, you know, Stoltenberg and I mean, and all the spin masters and everyone else saying, oh, if we, you know, compromise, we'll lose face with China as if this is about China. And if, you know, this is really going to determine something about China, it's mindless. But when you ask the question, how can you negotiate? President Kennedy said in the peace speech, both sides have incentives to agree to terms that are beneficial for each and to stick with those terms. So you make agreements that make sense. That's how to do it. Not imposed agreements, but agreements that make sense. And I think that there is plenty of space for such agreements. That's the point. I have thought all along over the last 30 years the last thing in the world we need is a confrontation between the United States and Russia. And again, I was Yeltsin's economic advisor in 1992. Yeltsin was saying, we want to be friends. We want to be normal. We want to be fully economically integrated. The United States could not hear yes for an answer. This goes back 30 years. You know, Yeltsin's I know it. He said it to my ear. I, you know, we want to just be normal country. We want to have good relations. The United States, it goes in one ear and the United States says, oh, oh, I see. You want a unipolar U.S.-led hegemonic world. That We get it. You know, this is how it gets processed in the American uh, mental machinery of the military industrial complex. So, there are grounds for negotiating that are mutually beneficial. Russia actually would benefit from peace. The United States would benefit from peace. Europe would benefit from peace. The rest of the world would benefit from peace. Ukraine would be saved. That's why it's good that we negotiate because there's a space for mutual gain for all parties. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, controlled demolition says the Cuban Missile Crisis happened because we had to put missiles in Turkey and resolve it. And to resolve it, those missiles were removed. The, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, happened because uh, things were spinning out of control in the late 50s and early 60s uh, over Cuba, over the 
failure to have a actually a treaty that ended World War II over the remilitarization of Germany over a harebrained scheme at the time, by the way, which is little understood, but uh, the, the best historians understand this very well. The Eisenhower administration was toying with giving nuclear weapons to Germany. And we have that today. We have Zelensky sometimes saying maybe we should have nukes and uh, others saying the same thing. Well, this is a, a sure way to end the world if we start uh, with that. Uh, but in the late 1950s, this was actually on the table. And uh, when the United States started to pull back from giving nukes to uh, Germany, thinking maybe it's not such a great idea, actually de Gaulle came forward to Adenauer and said, we'll make a good agreement with you guys and we could discuss that issue as well. So there were a lot of games being played in the early 1960s. It was an extremely, extremely dangerous period. At the root of it was, I believe, that the United States and the Soviet Union never talked about the fundamental security interests at the end of World War II. And there was never a peace agreement about Germany. There was just a decision starting in 1948 there will be a Federal Republic of Germany, a West German state, and NATO uh, will be established in 1949. Germany will become the bulwark of NATO. We will remilitarize uh, on our side. And by the way, this idea is so commonplace, almost no one in the United States would say, well, that's not why the Cold War happened. Uh, the Cold War happened because of Stalin and this and that. But actually, if you really study this, if you listen to Kennan, uh, if, you, uh, if, if you read uh, Mark Trachtenberg, uh, brilliant history uh, of the Cold War, you can see Russia, I'll say Soviet Union, had deep security concerns completely understandable after losing more than 20 million people. And the United States was completely unwilling to discuss them. And that is a core structural feature of the world since 1945 until today in Ukraine. The United States, for lots of reasons, mainly arrogance, is unwilling to accept that any other country has security concerns. The United States has a big security concern. It wants to be number one in the world. But then if any other country says, well, we have security concerns, the United States says, no, you don't. How could you? We're peace loving. We run the world. How could you have security concerns? And that has been a problem actually since 1945. And that is also where we are today. And I think, I think perhaps, so one, one more, did you say? One, one more, because that leads, that's a great uh, segue to our final question, which is on the screen right now, which is how do you see the US uh, future given everything that's happening right now? I, <laughs> that's a good question. It's a big question. You know, <laughs> no, it's but, but question. you know, it, 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 it's basically this. I'm 68. The U.S. has been at war almost every year of my life. My political consciousness, 
I, my first uh, political awareness actually was the Cuban Missile Crisis. It may sound odd. I was seven years old at the time, but I remember looking at airplanes flying above my primary school uh, and telling a friend, maybe they're coming to drop bombs on us. That was my understanding in October 1962. Uh, I remember uh, the, the height of the Cold War. Uh, I marched against Vietnam. Uh, we learned about Cambodia, about Laos, places that I've spent my career visiting and working in and not being able to walk in the fields because of American landmines that are still completely strewn uh, across Cambodia and the United States doing goddamn nothing to help them get rid of these landmines that uh, came from this completely reckless and illegal bombing more than half a century ago. And then the wars in Latin America, which I know a lot about. Uh, a a uh, president said to me, they're going to take me out, Jeff. And I said, no, 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 no. And he was overthrown in a coup, U.S. coup afterwards. I've seen this with my own eyes for decades. It's very despairing. Very despairing. And... Of course, I've tried to say for decades, there's a better way. This doesn't help the U.S. at all. It really doesn't. We have so many problems. We rank somewhere between 40th and 50th in the world in life expectancy right now. Can you imagine? We've had years of decline of life expectancy. This is a society that's falling apart in many ways. On my street in New York, there are shootings on both ends of the street right now. It's unbelievable what's happening. And we want more war. We want bigger military budgets and so on. Now, when I say we, the basic problem is the American political system got hacked and ruined systematically 40 years ago. Yeah, not everything was great beforehand, but the spigots of big money were turned on by design. Actually, it's a fascinating story uh, that... Uh, the, the corporate sector was worried about the New Deal and all the uh, environmental uh, regulations and, and uh, worker safety regulations and so forth. And a corporate lawyer, Lewis Powell, wrote a memo about how the companies needed to retake American politics. And Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court. And his opinion was, OK, all corporate political giving is free speech. They, they, they completely broke a political system of one person, one vote to make it one dollar, one vote. And we parceled out the American political system to big lobbies. In health, we have our big health care, so everything's twice as expensive as it should be. Uh, in, uh, in finance, we have Wall Street, which dominates. Uh, we get 2008 financial crisis and so forth. Foreign policy got parceled out to the military industrial complex. This isn't a U.S. foreign policy. It's a very narrow foreign policy of a, of a piece of the government that responds to very particular interests. And we did the same in, in many other sectors, big oil and the, the same thing. So the American political system is broken. That's our problem. We can't solve problems right now. Uh, it's too much money. It's not Democrats and Republicans, by the way. That's theater. That's the theatrics. Uh, 
both parties take money from the billionaires. George Soros just said that, uh, you know, he's given his empire to his son. His son said, well, I'm going to make massive contributions to the Democratic Party. Well, they're billionaires in the Republican Party. It's this is the game right now. And this is why it's really (laughs) amazing. Now, where does optimism come in? Most of the world says, do your thing. But actually, we'd like economic development, climate safety, uh, healthcare, other things. So most of the world is really saying right now, look, United States, fine. Don't, as I said, don't bomb us. Uh, don't expect us to do your sanctions regime. But come on, don't break the whole world. And let's actually solve some problems in the world. And I'm very enthusiastic about progress that's being made in many places in the world. I love this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, by the way, because I've been going for years and I've been saying in the region, you guys have the same problems, get together to solve them. One time I was visiting Tehran and I was taken around Tehran and showed all this surface water that was evaporating because of climate change and the dust storms. And we had a cocktail party on a, in a, in a uh, apartment building and it was all black. It was just dust storms. And then I went to Riyadh right after that and heard the same thing. And I said, why don't you have a joint center with uh, you know, with the, ter- oh, no, no, that's impossible, impossible. Uh, you know, but of course, it's the most sensible thing in the world that neighbors that share a problem should, should work together. So the Middle East is coming together. The African Union actually really, truly is forming an Africa-wide consensus about economic development, about basic infrastructure. This is extremely important. ASEAN is doing the same thing. China and its Belt and Road Initiative is an extremely constructive idea for integrating different parts of the world in modern infrastructure. There's a lot to be positive about. There really is. I don't expect the U.S. uh, actually to be the first to make the breakthroughs. I expect most of the world to move forward and say to the U.S., we hope you solve your problems. We really do. Just don't make problems for us. And I think that that is the most likely route to success right now. Of course, I'd like the U.S. to do better than that, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, at the U.N., one of my jobs is to help or not jobs because it's volunteer, but one of my activities is to advocate for the sustainable development goals, the 17 globally agreed goals. And I'll just close with this observation, which is really telling. We have 193 governments in the United Nations. All governments are supposed to present their sustainable development goal plans. And it's called voluntary national review because each government tells the other governments what they're doing. So VNRs. And they do that each summer. So 188 countries have presented VNRs out of 193 To my mind, that shows a lot of world interest in sustainable development. Five countries have not done so. What are they? South Sudan, Myanmar, uh, uh, Haiti, uh, South Sudan, Myanmar, 
Haiti. Uh, I'm missing two and missing one because the fifth one is the United States of America. Uh, so the U.S. hasn't even woken up to the fact that there's a global agenda right now, actually one that the United States absolutely needs. And so to my mind, I wouldn't expect the solutions to come out of Washington. I'm hoping that American politics can be repaired. I'm hoping that America stops having wars all over the world. I'm hoping that the 800 overseas military bases are closed down and vast numbers and people come home uh, and that we attend to our domestic problems. Uh, and I'm hoping that the world consensus that climate change and, uh, and uh, the collapse of our oceans and the destruction of our beloved rainforests and so forth are really serious problems, that poverty is serious problem, that artificial intelligence and digital is both an opportunity and a threat that needs to be faced, that we focus on the real things, not on escalating to nuclear destruction. And I'm optimistic that most of the world sees this. I'm very disappointed, of course, in Europe, because I have long believed that Europe is a lot smarter and sounder than the U.S., but it has at least Brussels, maybe the problem is it was a bad idea to put NATO headquarters and European Union headquarters in the same city. This may be the fundamental problem because it's a fundamental confusion. And I have to say, Alexander, I'm sorry to end on a, I used to love Britain, <laughs> but, but I have to say Britain taught the United States so many bad habits. Oh. I say it often. It's true. And uh, I'm, anyway, us English speakers, we, we need to rethink the act. <laughs> that, that, I think, is the, uh, the, the bottom line of all of this. Uh, we got a lot of healing to do at home, and I hope that the rest of the world takes the lead uh, in solving the really big global problems. Fantastic. Fantastic. Jeffrey yes. Sachs, you've given us an hour. Yes, <laughs> we are just an hour. Delighted. So I, I wanted to say thank you very much thank, for, thank for you. your generosity again. Thank Great you very much. You. Take Th care. Thank you to everyone that watched us. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.